IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to IB Talk, the global insurance podcast brought to you by Insurance Business. I'm Paul Lucas, the Managing Editor of Insurance Business, and after last week's edition with the CEO of Anzif speaking to us from Melbourne, Australia, this week we're travelling across the Tasman to meet the CEO of Financial Advice New Zealand, uh, Katrina Shanks. Katrina, welcome to IB Talk. Kia ora, Paul. Thank you for having me on today. That is a traditional New Zealand welcome. It is indeed. <laughs> it's my first time hearing that, so you caught me a little bit off guard. But I'm 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 glad to get that. Thank you very much. So, so Katrina, I'm thrilled to have you on the show, and and, and not just because of your uh, perspectives on the insurance industry, uh, but also because of your career today. If I can sort of start off by turning the clock back a little bit, um, a few jobs back from your current role, uh, you were actually, I believe, the financial controller for the NZ National Party and then a a member of parliament, I think, for around seven years. Uh, How did you get yourself into politics? Wow, yeah, I certainly had a really varied career, but quite an exciting one, I've got to say. Um, So actually, if I go right back to when I was quite small, So I was brought up in an entrepreneurial public service type family where my my father and my grandfathers, um, they all had um, farms and small businesses and really active in their communities and public service and were on health boards and hospital boards and borough councils. and, And my father, he stood for parliament when I was about six and um, didn't get in. He actually stood against the Prime Minister of the time, didn't get in, and then re-stood again when he, the Prime Minister then became Governor-General of New Zealand, who was Keith, Sir Keith Holyoke, and, and didn't get in again. And so I was brought up with politics my whole life and wanting to do public service and having a view that you can contribute, that you should make a contribute, you could, should contribute to society as much as you possibly can, and you can make a real difference when you do that. So that's kind of how I was brought up. So I've kind of had politics in my blood forever. And then there came a point in my time when I started having a family, and I'm, I'm a child accountant by trade. I'd taken a bit of time out to to have my family. An opportunity came along to get involved in a campaign when I had a, a six-week-old, a two-year-old, and a four-year-old. And I thought I had plenty of time because I was no longer working, so I would help on a political campaign, and I did that got totally addictive to um, the environment and the difference you can make and really activated that rule to make a difference in people's lives on a more national platform. And um, from there, an opportunity arose two years later to stand for Parliament, stood for Parliament and was lucky enough to get in. And from there, I spent the next seven years um, really committed to helping people, public service, making a difference and influencing policy. So that's kind of the journey how I got there. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I, I wasn't aware that your, your father was in politics as well, so I, I'm assuming he was a, a huge role model for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I've had many role models in my life. Uh, my grandmother was my biggest one, most probably. Very strong woman, very passionate about making a difference, always helping out at the next cause, had a vision for what things should look like. And when she was, you know, so she was in the 60s and she was on lots of boards where it was very hard for women to break through onto boards and so I really took inspiration from her and her strength and her will to make a real difference and she actually was a big influence in my life as was my father um, for many different reasons but obviously he also took that road into politics and 
I was the first one in my family to make it onto the national stage, which I was very fortunate to do. So with me, I felt I had a lot of, you know, I was standing on the shoulders of some very strong, um, on, on some very strong mentors and um, the family, which totally created who I was today, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I, I, we often talk about here, you know, the, the sort of perspective of, of, of women in insurance. We, we hold a few uh, events on that theme around the world. Um, but I'd love to know your perspective on, on being a woman in politics. I mean, I know your country obviously has a, you know, a, a very widely popular female prime minister right now. But uh, what was it like at that time for you? So we're talking sort of a, around 2007. Was it was it difficult to be sort of a, a woman in that position? I don't think it's necessarily difficult. I think that in New Zealand in particular, women have, you know, had broken through into Parliament a lot. And I think there was about 35% women in Parliament when I was in there, and our caucus was at about 40% from memory, so fairly well represented in Parliament. Women just operate slightly differently to men, and I think that's where the difference comes, and we have a slightly different view and balance in our lives. So when you're in politics, it's very consuming and it keeps on taking whatever you will give. And it's really important for your career that you you get around and you meet people and you network and you and you commit 150% to your career in politics. So the balance in your life is slightly different. You don't have as much time for your family. You don't have as much time for yourself. And you're very focused on driven and it's such an addictive um, environment to be in that it consumes everything that you do. So I think it's it's men are very good at it being very single focused and, and can let things go and have wives that operate in the background, which is absolutely fantastic and look after the family. I think as a female it's a little bit harder when when you know, I have a fantastic husband who's who's really supportive but he's he doesn't quite do the same things that I do in the house. So it was really diff- difficult to get that balance and many of the females that you talk to who have got families in there struggle with that balance as well. So it's thinking, it's about understanding that balance and understanding still to how you can progress your career in a very um, competitive environment. So what they say in politics is your your enemy surrounds you and your opposition sits in front of you, which is so true because it's such a competitive environment to get into cabinet and to have those portfolios that, you know, you have to be 150% committed to your job all the time. And obviously you do so much in the community, you do so much in Parliament, you do so much policy work that, you know, it, it, you can just take up 24 hours of your day, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, and, and you said then when, when you um, started out, um, so you had three quite young children at the time, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, how, how did you juggle that? How did you juggle? Go- I mean, first of all, what sort of, I guess, sort of gave you that impetus? Was it, is it just something inside you where you feel like, you know, you, you've got to sort of, you, you want you want to fill your time, you want to do something interesting, exciting all, 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 all the time? Because I, I guess for most people, probably with three children, they think, oh, my hands are full. That's enough for me. <laughs> Yeah, and I think everybody is wired slightly differently, right? For me, you know, I've got this real drive to help people and to make a difference in people's lives. And that's, you know, we can get on to why I took the role that I didn't. It's part of why I took the role that I have got now is that I've got this real drive that I want to make a difference in people's life. I want to leave a legacy behind when I go and I can say, actually, you know, I did make a difference and I have helped people and, and that's why I did what I did. I had this really strong feeling that, well, I've, I've got this really strong view that the family is the cornerstone of our, one of the key cornerstones of our society. And I think over time that's been diminished and we, we don't 
put the energy or the focus, the importance, certainly in policy on the importance of strengthening that family unit because, you know, that, that is fundamental to our society. So I went in there with a real will to want to put family at the centre of policy making. And so that's the reason why I went in there to make that difference and to put that focus. And I was lucky that I went in there. I, was, I had two years in opposition, then we we're in government. So I got a real opportunity to influence um, ministers and policy every time policy came to our caucus, because that's how you sign off policy in Parliament is, in New Zealand Parliament is through your caucus um, with your ministers and had the real ability to try and put that focus in policy making going forward. So I went in with a, a real will to try and make a difference and influence. And I think most people that go into politics do do that. And those that don't struggle, I think, and don't find their way and their true purpose in there. So I think you've got to go in there with a real meaning to make a difference. And, and that's, that's what was lighting my fire. Yeah, and still does, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that interests me is um, what, what was it like to, to, to be on the campaign trail? Because um, I must imagine on, on one side, it's probably great to, to sort of meet the supporters, but also, you know, you've, you've got to face perhaps some a lot of difficult conversations with the public as well. How, how do you sort of deal with that side of things? Yeah, so once again, I think you've got to, you know, you've got to truly believe in, in what you're saying and what you're doing and the policy that you've developed and the platform that you're standing on. And you don't always agree with all the policy, but you most probably agree with 80% of the policy that that you're standing on with your party. And and I think it's it's it takes a life of its own, a campaign. So you have a campaign team and you build a team and you build funds and, and you're out doing public hoardings, you know, with signs at roundabouts and you're at public meetings and you're going around schools and you're going around kindies and you're at the side of the sports field and you're going to every fundraiser that there is. And But it's, it's a... You know, it, it's all exciting and it has a life of its own and you're building to a date so you can do that and it's totally consuming. And But at the same time, it's really important, I think, in a democratic society that people get to hear the views of the, the different political parties and can make an informed decision about why they vote the way they do. So for me, it was about trying to get the message across to the voter um, in the community about what we stood for as a party and whether they aligned with that or not. So I think at the end of the day, a lot of people go to the polls and don't really understand the the policies or the three key policies of a party and they just vote the way they always voted or vote the way that their parents voted. And I think actually the more we can inform voters about what your policies are, then they can align with what they really believe and the direction that you're going in as a, as a country or as a party and determine which way you want your country to go. And I think that's re the really important part of the democratic process. And I know I know people get really frustrated with seeing hoardings up on the side of roads and another public meeting, but actually that's the strength of a democratic process is that voice. Yeah, and I know that you were the part of a, sort of a, the analysis of, a, I guess, a lot of important bills during your, t your time as an MP. Um, is there anything that you were particularly proud of during your time in office, perhaps a, you know, a bill that passed or a piece of legislation that went through, something like that? Yeah, so we were just coming out of, or there's lots of bits of legislation actually, um, but I think what we were doing in New Zealand is we'd just come out of a global crash um, when we came into government. And in New Zealand, what we'd had was a whole lot of finance companies which had collapsed over the last four years. And we didn't have legislation in there um, to protect the consumer against advice they were receiving on, um, on 
you know, the type of product you should get or, or what a portfolio looks like or finance companies and the strength of them. So there was a lot of work that was done in strengthening the financial services sector through legislation that wasn't there before. And it came in at speed and it, and it came through really fast in a very small consultation process to try and get it over the line, to try and re rectify some of the issues, but also build public confidence and trust in the financial services sector again. And I think that was really fundamental um, legislation that brought in for consumer protection, which was really important in a time where a lot of people had lost a lot of money, especially those who were retired. Yeah, and I, I think it's probably going to come across uh, to, to our listeners, you know, I mean, you sound still so sort of enthusiastic and passionate about it. What made you decide to, to leave the political sphere? Oh, there's a number of reasons um, that I decided to make that decision. I had a family that was getting a little bit older. I think when I left, I had a 14, a 10 and an 8-year-old. And I just wanted to spend some more time with my family. And I were growing up and I was... I was starting to feel like I didn't have much time left with them. So it was really about rebalancing my life a little bit more and spending some more time with my family. And I think you come in, you put all your energy in it, into it, and then you go. And I thought I'd given as much energy as I could to that role. So, And I'd done some pretty amazing things, and I'd had some wonderful opportunities. And I thought I'd influence the policy which I wanted to influence. So I thought it was the right time for me to go. So I think you make those. Everybody makes those personal decisions themselves, and I, you know, I don't believe you should be in there as a as a lifetimer. I think you go in. It's a privilege to be a member of parliament. You go in, you make your difference. You go and you let someone else with the same enthusiasm enthusiasm that you had when you first came in um, to do that themselves. Yeah, what a great attitude. Um, so then you were the, the chief exec of uh, the Funeral Directors Association of New Zealand, and then you, you moved into the role that you have now, which is the CEO of Financial Advice New Zealand. Yeah. Um, was it was it a, a coming home of sorts to be back sort of firmly focused on finance, having had sort of roles in banking and, and auditing early in your yeah. career? Yes, it was actually an interesting jump. So I went to the funeral. Funeral directors is a bizarre jump. Everybody thinks it's kind of slightly oddball, but actually – it really filled what I was looking for because I, you know, in the funeral sector, you know, funeral directors help people every single day and make a difference in their lives. And that's what I'm really passionate about. And they had some some issues which they had to get over the line. So it was quite a good role, that one. But it also had a funeral trust which had $52 million in it, which I managed. So that gave me a bit of more of a segue into the financial services sector. And I was really interested in managing that fund. So that's kind of where I jumped from there. And then this opportunity arose once I'd finished my work there. And once again, you know, this was an organisation which brand new three organisations came into one to found uh, Financial Advice New Zealand, which has been going for two years now. And I was the founding CEO. And it was like coming home a little bit. You know, it's, it's coming back to what I know, what I love, where my strengths are. And obviously the sector as it is globally, everybody's going through significant change. And um, I thought I could make a difference in that change and, and influence policy in the direction where I think it should go and where actually Financial Advice New Zealand thinks it should go as well. Yeah. So, I mean, looking at the, the insurance sector, um, tell us how Financial Advice New Zealand actually sort of influences the sector. Um, you know, what, is, it, is it about sort of, you know, pushing for, for le legislation and regulation that, that, that has that sort of influence on, on the brokers and so on? 
Yes, I think there's three things you've got to look at if you want to influence change in a sector. I think legislation legislation provides your framework, which you have to operate within. The regulations in the legislation provides the detail. So it's important that you've got that framework set up right and strong. If you've got that framework wrong, then it hampers the growth of the whole sector. So it's ensuring that framework's right. And then I think it's ensuring that the the culture and conduct and the framework of product providers is correct as well. So I think that's really important that they've got that oversight at board level and below about what the conduct and culture looks like of the organisation and of insurance and having insurance which is fit for purpose and is relevant and modern and engaging with the consumer. And then I think the third lever in all of this, if you think of it as a funnel going down the funnel, is for the advisor, the insurance advisor. What does that look like for them? And once again, it's ensuring so they've got that framework of legislation, legislation, they've got the product provider with the right um, conduct and culture framework coming down from the board, and then you've got the advisor giving the advice to the consumer, and that's got to also have in it um, components of I'm a professional, and as a professional, you know, I do certain things, I have a qualification, I have CBD, I believe in ethics, and I'm going to do the right thing by my consumer every single time I deal with my consumer slash my client. And I think if you can get all those three um, bottles lined up in a row, so to speak, then I think what we're going to have is we're going to see a lot more people engage in the insurance sector, engage in purchasing that protection of insurance and understanding it, But not only that, we're going to have a sector which is vibrant and modern, which people want to engage with and see a value in engaging with it. And I think there's a few of these things which we're missing along the way. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think that that term um, and you know ad, ad insurance advisor is is something that's used perhaps more commonly um, in New Zealand than it is elsewhere. Where I think you know we just would perhaps use the term broker, for example. Yeah. Um, why, why do you think that that's that that term has, has sort of taken off in New Zealand? Is it? Do you think that you're perhaps a little bit further along in in brokers? Uh, you know, providing more than just you know providing sort of the, the best price and getting getting the customer the best deal so to speak and and actually sort of you know offering you know risk mitigation advice and things like that do you think brokers uh, go a little bit further in, in New Zealand yeah no so so brokers are different to advisors by definition right so if you look at what an advisor is an advisor is to look at all the different solutions and provide a recommendation to the client which they decide whether they want to implement or not depending on the information that you've given them, the transfer of knowledge. So in New Zealand, what we've done with our legislation, which comes in on the 15th of March next year, is that what we've taken is we've put anybody that gives any form of regulated financial advice or regulated financial advice under the same umbrella, whether that be mortgage, insurance, investment or financial planning. Whereas before they were slightly split out, now they're under the same umbrella. So now everybody is viewed as having to have professional traits, which is um, outcomes of a certain qualification, which is um, professional development. Um, um, We're talking about professional indemnity insurance now. So what we're doing in New Zealand is we're taking it from being in the sales mode to to a professional ladder, and that's where the legislation has taken us. And so now when someone goes to seek financial advice, you know, they wouldn't accept 
you wouldn't expect them to have just a sales process. You'd expect to have them something greater than sales, and that is advice, and that's where the legislation has taken us. Mm-hmm. So I mean, one of the things I think that always comes up when, when we talk about the issue of, of you know, the, the insurance broker and offering advice and so on is, is whether or not that they can be truly ethical if they are sort of by definition, almost acting as an agent uh, for the client, but also acting as a, as the agent of the insurer in the in the same transaction. Um, how can how can the broker be ethical, if you want? Yeah, so it's about the conflict of interest with when you're receiving a commission, right? So there are lots of industries which have the the same issue of conflict of issue. You know, your contract conflict of interest. You're receiving a commission, or you're receiving a remuneration directly related to the sale that you produce. So I I think everybody can have a conflict of interest. There's no problem of that. It's managing that conflict of interest and disclosing that correctly. So it's all about the client understanding what the conflict is. It's all about the advisor or the broker understanding what the conflict is. And it's understanding that the conflict has to be managed and you have to put the consumer or the client at the centre of all your decision-making And that's how you get the outcome that you get. And what you've recommended is the right product or the right service for the client, as opposed to I'm going to get a commit. I get more commission on this product. Therefore, I want to sell more of this product this month because actually I want to increase my my revenue stream. It's no longer about that. It's, It's about getting the right outcome for the consumer and being consumer centric going forward. And I think there's an expectation by the public that we are consumer-centric, that it is about getting the right outcome for the consumer, and it's not about just the sale anymore. And I think if we want to increase, not New Zealand, but globally, people having more insurance, having more protection, it's got to be about being consumer-centric, not about being sales-centric. So does it, do do we need to be completely transparent then? Do we need to sort of you know to, to be presenting to the customer, um, you know, these are my fees. This is this is the commission that I, I'm going to get from this deal. Absolutely, you should be because I think the I think you have to own what you do. I think if you disclose what you do, disclose your conflicts, you've owned your conflicts, and I think that's really important for building public confidence and trust. If you are hiding things, that's when people get nervous. That's when people think they can't trust you because you haven't been totally honest and transparent with people and it's when they raise questions and they haven't been given the answers to before you get mistrust so I think the more you can disclose and it doesn't have to be complex disclosure when I talk disclosure I don't mean 50 pages you can have a simple disclosure document which is only two pages long and just tell the client that you've got conflict and this is the five parts that I manage in my conflict when when I've put this piece of advice together so I, th- I think we try to make things really complex. And I think if you can make complex things simple, then you can easily communicate them. It means you understand that as well. And I think we've had, you know, when I was a, a legislator in Parliament, the same thing. We'd had officials bring us this legislation, which was super complex. And it's like, it doesn't have to be, nothing has to be complex. Complex situations can be communicated simply. And I think that's what we've got to keep on processing and concentrating on. Because I know, you know, I got some some life insurance the other day and I think my policy was like 70 pages long. And it was like, this is totally insane as a consumer. You know, we should be able to make things much more simple. 
And actually, consumers don't want to read 70 pages. Actually, I didn't read, I shouldn't actually be saying this, I don't think I read anything apart from the first two pages and said to my advisor, what do I need to know? Because I don't have time to read 70 pages. So, you know, I think we've got to focus on keeping things simple for the consumer and the client. And I think that's been fair with the client. Yeah. So, so what steps do you think that uh, should be taken sort of beyond disclosure then? So obviously, you know, yeah, okay, I, I should be upfront about my fees and commissions, et cetera. What else? You know, what, what are the other sort of steps that, that we should take towards kind of tackling that conflict of interest perception? Yeah, so I, I think that the conflict is all about understanding the conflict. And I think and in a lot of instances I talk to I talk to insurance advisors and or brokers and they don't actually quite understand the conflict themselves. So I think it's a bit about education and I think it's about being able to educate um, the broker about what conflict actually is and how you manage that conflict. And I think it's also about understanding with the provider what that conflict is. So if you are a broker and you've only got one product provider which you are giving advice on or brokering on, then you know you've got to, you've got to be totally transparent with your client and say I'm only giving advice on one product. That's your disclosure. You're giving advice on one product, and yes, I see receive a commission on this and owning what that commission is. So in New Zealand, we're just bringing in regular uh, disclosure documents, which were released this week. That's not saying you have to state exactly what your what your commission is, but you have to state you receive the commission. And I think that's the way um, the way forward is just being open, honest, transparent, and owning um, as a commission based. And in New Zealand, it's recognised as a commission based form of remuneration, which is totally acceptable for insurance brokers and advisors. Yeah, just just for the sake of our listeners, I'll, I'll let them know we are actually recording this uh, sort of a couple of weeks in advance. So when you sort of referenced uh, this being introduced this week, it, is, it, it will be sort of a, a, few, a few weeks back where by the time that this sort of goes out. But I um, mean, we're, we're talking a lot here about sort of, you know, the, the advisors, the brokers. Uh, but what about the insurers themselves? What what steps should, should they take towards uh, being more ethical with their businesses? Yeah, so once again, I think it's about doing the right thing. I think it's about making sure your policies are fit for purpose. Your policies are modern and relevant. Your policies are simple and easy to read in plain English. That's got to be absolutely fundamentally right. And then I think it's ensuring when you've got legacy policies, because you talk to insurance advisors and brokers who have got legacy policies that can't move their clients from these policies, because of pre-existing conditions now, right? And so they would lose some of the benefits of their policies, but actually the policies are out of date because of the wording and they're no longer relevant. Actually, you know, what I would love to see is if there's insurance providers out there that have got legacy products which aren't really fit for purpose in this day and age, to be able to transfer those legacy policies into new policies without disadvantaging the consumer or the client. I think, you know, if we could get to that stage, that would be absolutely wonderful. Yeah, so uh, I just want to uh, s- switch bases with you a little bit before we wrap up, Katrina, because there's, there's one thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about a little bit off topic. Um, when I was in, in Auckland about a year ago, I noticed the sort of the overwhelming popularity of electric scooters. And uh, I believe that you've sort of gone electric yourself, but with an electric bike. I have. This has trans- totally transformed my life. So I had a birthday last year, a big birthday last year, and I said to my husband, I've been wanting an electric bike for about three years, 
and he hadn't bought me a present and it was my birthday day and I said right I'm just just get me an electric bike so I had this perfect opportunity to get an electric bike and so off we went got an electric bike it has totally transformed the way I live and my life so now I bike to work every day I live about oh eight k's away from my office down a big two big massive hills I've got to say so electric bike is awesome getting home don't really pedal on the way to work I've got to say so I pedal to work I come home again and I, I, it's transformed me from hopping in the car to do everything to hopping on my bike to do everything. So now on a weekend, I'll hop on my bike. I, I get really excited because I'm on bike rides. So I wake up really early at 6 a.m. And I'll hop on my bike and I'll put a thermos in my little basket. I'm one of those bikers, by the way. It's like driving this daisy, but on a bike. And um, so I hop on my bike and off I'll go for three hours and bike around all the bays and stop and have my coffee and take a few pics of the sun coming up and and get home at about 11 o'clock in the morning, and I've had the most wonderful morning and way to set off my weekend. So it's totally transformed the way I move, um, how much I move. Obviously, my emissions are reduced significantly, because not, not that I'm a big greenie. I shouldn't really have said that, actually. Not that I'm a big greenie, but, um, you know, it, it makes me feel good about what I'm doing and how I'm doing, and I'm feeling so much healthier for it. So totally transformed the way I live my life. So what, what, what's the advantage, I mean, for somebody, you know, I mean, myself, I've never been on an electric bike. I've only sort of been on the, the sort of traditional bicycle. What, what's, the, what's the big difference? I hate the traditional bicycle because I hate going up hills <laughs> and having to push really hard. I hate having to get up a sweat every time you hop on your bike. So on an electric bike, you don't really have to. So electric bike, you have the choice of how hard you work on it. So I've got one of those ones that you still have to pedal regardless. But it, it's your choice about how hard you work on your bike. So you can have it on full power and just kind of cruise around, or you can have it on low power and have to have a really good workout. So it gives you lots of choices about how you ride your bike, and it gives you distance. So on a Saturday morning for three hours, I can do 45Ks around the city, around the edge of all the bays, and I would never do 45Ks. So it gives me distance, which is what I love about it. So I can go on a big adventure as opposed to I travel like, five k's away from my house I'm really tired and then I have to come home again yeah so it gives you distance and it gives you choice and it gives you variety and best thing I ever did well, I, I'm sure that this conversation has been electric for our listeners that's the best, <laughs> that's the, that is the best segue I had um, but if anybody wants to, to reach out to you on the back of this chat how can they get hold of you uh, through LinkedIn for example uh, absolutely or flip me an email Katrina S at financialadvice.nz um, is an email I check every five minutes so feel free to email me on that address all right. Fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Thank you very, very much for your time, Katrina. Um, to everybody listening, thank you for tuning in once again. Uh, I'm Paul Lucas. This is IB Talk, and we'll chat again next week. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of IB Talk. Follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts for the latest episodes.